Hello and welcome to Travel Through Time, the podcast made in partnership with Colograph. This week we're travelling back to a dramatic year in the English Reformation. The 1530s was a period of profound religious change in England as reformers sought to bring down the old Catholic structures and replace them with Protestantism. In doing so, they unleashed a wave of violence and destruction of epic proportions. As the monasteries were dissolved and the churches stripped of their popish decoration, the art of previous centuries was decimated and many people lost their lives. The vast wealth of the church was shared out by the great and the good. Silverware was melted down. Images were whitewashed over. While the doors of the great medieval monastic libraries were thrown open, leaving their precious books to the mercy of ignorance and greed. Richard Ovenden tells this and many other haunting stories in Burning the Books, a history of knowledge under attack. As the head of one of the greatest libraries in the world, the Bodleian in Oxford, Richard is a leading expert on knowledge preservation and wrote this book as a response to the defunding and loss of libraries, 773 in the previous decade, and the shocking destruction of the Windrush generation's landing cards by the Home Office in recent years. He was awarded an OBE in 2019 for services to libraries and archives. Welcome to Travels Through Time, Richard. I'm so excited about speaking to you today, not least because we do actually know each other. Um, and you were one of my supervisors on my PhD. So we first met many, many years ago now. Was it 20 years? I don't know. God, is it really? Extraordinary. But up in Edinburgh in the University Library. Exactly, where you were working in the special collections and um, I was embarking on my PhD. And of course, since then, you um, have moved to Oxford and um, become Bodley's librarian, which is surely the greatest job title on earth and possibly the greatest job on earth as well. I, um, <laughs> I couldn't agree more. <laughs> so before we start talking about your uh, fascinating book, um, I just want to ask you a little bit about your job and about being um, in charge of such an incredible institution. Can you just tell us a little bit about the Bodleian Libraries, as they are called, and um, what your job involves day to day? Sure, well, uh, the, the Bodleian is, um... Uh, a big old library and last year we celebrated our 700th anniversary as the University Library of Oxford University. Um, so we date ourselves back formally to 1320 and halfway through that we became the Bodleian Library um, at the end of the 16th century and maybe we'll come back and talk about that incident um, uh, a little later. But today we're um, the historic institution called the Bodleian Library, 
but also um, it's a system of libraries, of departmental and faculty libraries, ranging in subject matter from anthropology to, to zoology, and um, pretty much everything in between. And um, it, it's uh, both a university library dedicated to supporting the students and researchers of the university, also a national library because we're a library of legal deposit, so we're entitled under um, the copyright laws, a copy of every book published in the United Kingdom, the Republic of Ireland, free of charge. And um, we're also an international library of great cultural treasures from across the globe. So from um, East Asia to South America, we collect and have collected for centuries material um, that documents um, science, culture, politics, history, art, you name it, uh, across the globe. And so we are an organization spread over 40 buildings with more than 800 staff and a budget of about 50 million pounds a year. So my job is partly as an administrator and manager of the, the staff and buildings and the budgets. Uh, I'm responsible to report on the budget to the university. I'm responsible for the health and safety of our staff and readers. Um, we have a big technology um, role as well as storing and preserving physical items. We have that role too for digital material. And we have commercial businesses because we have to raise money because not everything comes from the university's annual grant. So we have to earn some of our own um, income as well as uh, stir up other men's benevolence as um, our founder put it to my predecessor, the first librarian. Um, so fundraising, philanthropy is a big part of what I do as well. And can you talk a little bit about um, the founding of the library, how, how it came into being? Yeah, so um, the original foundation in 1320 was made by a man called Thomas Cobham, the Bishop of Worcester, who um, sought to build an, a, a building adjacent to the university church, which was the kind of centre of the early university. And that building housed a room where the university could be governed from, um, but also a room above it, which was where uh, the first library was. And that library was partly given by the bishop himself from his own collection. And he funded the university chaplain, who was also the librarian. And then in the 16th century, the Reformation saw that original library dispersed and destroyed. And then uh, Sir Thomas Bodley, a wealthy businessman who, um, who was also a diplomat in the court of the of Elizabeth I, um, but also an Oxford graduate and a great lover of learning and, and knowledge, came back to his old university and found the uh, original library having been, as he said in his autobiography, laid waste. And he set himself the task of rebuilding the library kind of physically, but also kind of intellectually. And that rebuilding began with a letter to the Vice-Chancellor from Sir Thomas Bodley in 1598, kind of offering his services, which the university gratefully accepted. And then uh, by 1602, the library had been re-roofed, new shelves and desks put in, books placed on those shelves. And um, uh, my predecessor, the first librarian appointed, and uh, a man called Bodley's janitor, um, 
who we today call the chief operating officer, um, also <laughs> appointed to look after the building and the collections. And so um, we opened our doors to readers in 1602 um, as the public library of the University of Oxford. And that's an important notion itself because we were never a private library just for members of the university. We were open to what Sir Thomas called the whole Republic of the Learned. So anybody who needed to come and use our collections could, um, could was admitted. And indeed the first readers came from all over Europe they came from Danzig, from Montpellier, from Hamburg, from Edinburgh. Um, so that sense is being very important to us that it's not just about the acquisition and preservation of knowledge, it's about making it available to. And presumably at that time, that, that was the only library in this country which was open publicly in that way. I, it was pretty much, along with the Ambrosian Library in Milan, it was pretty much the only public library in Europe. Yeah. Um, other libraries one could apply and ask and kind of cajole oneself into to look at those books and indeed you know many of the college libraries would admit other readers but it was more by exception rather than by rule and the difference with the Bodleian is that in its statutes it allowed for um, you know and encouraged other readers to come in and use the, its collections. Yeah so the sharing of knowledge was right at the heart of it from the very beginning. Absolutely. Well, I think now we should turn to um, focusing a bit more on your book, which is about the loss of knowledge um, and the loss of books. Um, and I, I wanted you to just tell us a bit about how you got the idea. And then also um, it covers an extremely wide period of history. I think it's 3000 years. So I wondered if you could um, tell us a bit about how you chose the, th the moments that you focus on and why you chose those particular ones? Sure. So the book itself came about through probably sort of a couple of reasons, actually, more or less about the same time in 2018. And partly for a couple of years, I've been concerned that libraries and archives were not being discussed in the public sphere. We were not as um, visible, I think, in public discourse about um, the state of society and the role that knowledge plays in society as much as I think we should be. And that was playing itself out, I thought, and still think, in the way that libraries were funded by various public bodies. So we've seen the decline in the number of public libraries in this country. You know, we've lost a thousand in the last 10 years, you know, absolutely extraordinary. And the way that other public institutions, not just in the UK, but across the globe, have also been underfunded or defunded. So in January this year, for example, there was, um, you know, the National Library of Wales was kind of in a perilous state and a public campaign had to be launched to you know return about two and a half million pounds to its budget and at the moment the National Archives of Australia are struggling to survive as well so I felt that well what could I do to raise the value of libraries and archives and the work that they do in the public consciousness more could I even influence public policy so I thought perhaps I should write a book uh, a particular incident happened in the UK, I'm sure you'll remember it, and that is the immigration policy instituted by the government um, over the last sort of 
10 or 12 years called the hostile environment where fellow citizens were challenged by the home office to prove their right to remain and part of that challenge which was very severe very aggressive policy you know that's why it's called the hostile environment it wasn't cozy in any way at all um, was to prove through documentation that they had a legitimate um, right to, to remain in the UK and many of those citizens were put under extreme pressure. I think you know more than twenty took their own lives. You know, many, many more were deported, found themselves you know in uh, countries which they hadn't lived in for maybe fifty years and had no family left there, and, and you know in causing terrible distress and and physical and mental harm. And it became clear through an investigative journalistic report in the Guardian newspaper that the same government department that was instigating the hostile environment, the Home Office, had destroyed deliberately an archive of information, the landing records of many of those people who arrived on the Empire Windrush and the other vessels that brought um, these citizens who after all were invited. That archive was deliberately destroyed in 2010. The news of it only became revealed in 2018 through this uh, report in The Guardian and I read it one Saturday morning and was outraged and it seemed to me this was absolutely um, a classic example of the social value of the preservation of knowledge and I wrote the next day an op-ed for the Financial Times newspaper and I sent it to Lionel Barber the editor and said you know would he have any interest in publishing this and it got published that Thursday and the next day I got an uh, an offer from a publisher to to write a book about it. Right I think we should now um, start our time travel and head back to the year that you've chosen so can you please tell us um, where, where where we're going today? Okay, so we're going back to 1539. We're going back to the kind of um, one of the peak moments in the Protestant Reformation of the 16th century in England. Um, And we're going back to the southwest of England to the town of Glastonbury, um, famous, of course, for its music festival today for a kind of slightly sort of hippie counterculture-y associations. If you walk around the streets of Glastonbury, there are lots of kind of crystals twinkling, joysticks burning, alternative therapies. But in the heart of the town of Glastonbury today is a ruined abbey and ruined buildings in a beautiful green site with the famous hill called Glastonbury Tor, um, which you can see from all around in Somerset um, as, as it's, you know, a great kind of physical land, landmark um, as part of this, this kind of land, this beautiful green, leafy, calm and serene and rather magical landscape. Mm. Um, but in 1539, it was one of the great religious houses of Europe, not just in Britain, a massive church with massive extensive um, monastic buildings which housed a community a religious community of benedictine monks that was one of the wealthiest in the country um, presided over by an abbot called richard whiting okay and let's just talk a bit more generally before we go to our first scene can you 
explain where has England got to as far as the Reformation is concerned at this point? Because Henry VIII is still king. Thomas Cromwell is still alive. Can you set the scene a bit for what, what's, what's happening? Yeah, so what's, what, what, have, what have really happened is that um, Henry VIII had married um, his first wife, Catherine of Aragon, and for a whole variety of reasons, decided that um, he didn't want to be married to her anymore. And he'd rather taken a shine to a beautiful young courtier called Anne Boleyn and rather took a fancy to her and wanted to marry her. And so he went about trying to divorce himself, which of course in Catholic, you know, in Catholic Europe of the 16th century was not an impossible thing to do, but a very difficult thing to do, a controversial thing to do. And he sought um, to to papal approval for him to divorce um, uh, Catherine. And in the course of that campaign, which was partly an intellectual campaign, campaign of ideas, um, he decided that he would not only divorce himself from Catherine, but he would divorce the church in England from papal authority and set himself up as the head of the church in England and for it to become uh, a, a church imbued with ideas again started in Europe earlier in the 16th century by Martin Luther that were known as Protestantism so that denied things like um, the supremacy of the Pope um, it denied it, 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 it turned the tables on a whole variety of doctrinal and theological positions and that process we call the reformation and that had a, a whole variety of aspects to it um, at the heart of it were legal aspects so there were changes in the law that took place through the 1530s and there was also a kind of uh, a human process and that human process was inflicted on the religious institutions um, of of Britain, the, mon- the, the monasteries, uh, the nunneries, the convents, the um, a whole variety of, of you know formal, well-established institutions that were broken up, and they were seized by the crown as property, and that property was handed out in the in a process we call patronage to other landowners and people who. Um, became very wealthy and powerful as a result of this whole kind of social process that followed the religious changes. And it was quite, uh, it always strikes me that that Henry VIII wasn't Protestant, was he? He, he, I don't think he was even, he wasn't even very interested in Protestant ideas. I think his main preoccupation was marrying Anne Boleyn and then the, the getting hold of the wealth and having the position as the head of the church. Is that, is that correct? Or do you think he was? I'm not sure that I completely buy that. Um, I think there were, I think he did engage intellectually with Protestant ideas. And he was also um, taking some of these positions for much more pragmatic reasons, not least of which was that Anne Boleyn, the woman he was trying to marry, who really kind of believed it. Yeah. uh, She was associated with other religious reformers who were kind of she was part of a circle of people with really quite avant-garde ideas so let's go to your first scene which is um the 
idyllic last summer of Glastonbury Abbey and can you just give us a sense of what it would have been like to live there because the, these were this was a really enormous wealthy institution and you can get a sense of the scale of the abbey by going to the site today and the the church itself was enormous it was bigger even than Canterbury Cathedral so if you've been to Canterbury and you think Glastonbury was bigger than Canterbury wow and you uh, and the outbuildings, the cloisters and the other monastic buildings in the grounds of which there are just the kind of footings that you can see today, apart from the kitchen, um, were very, very extensive. And there was a big community of monks and a big community of staff, of servants who maintained the properties. And there are records that survive in the National Archives in London today um, called the Obedentiary Rolls that survived for 1538 and 1539. And they are the kind of fragments of the medieval archives of Glastonbury Abbey, which were taken up by the commissioners who were, you know, who were sent to Glastonbury to dissolve the house under the act of the um, for the dissolution of the greater monasteries and if you look at those records they tell this story because they record the payments made for a whole variety of things and those things include acquisition of food you know so there's vegetables and meat beef lamb you know fowl fishes all brought in you know they had the monastery had its own fish ponds you can see them if you walk around the grounds you know where the fish ponds would have been these huge tanks essentially stone tanks where fish were um you know channeled to feed the monastic community uh, and all of those watercourses and ditches that were part of the monastic property had to be cleaned. You know, you have to maintain a great estate like this properly. So there are payments for the cleaning of the ditches. There are pay pay payments for the cleaning of weeds. Um, the nettles around the Tower of St. Michael on Glastonbury Tour had to be chopped back and sighed. <laughs> That's an amazing detail to have. <laughs> to climb up Glastonbury Tour to cut the nettles down. Did they have a very big, they must have had massive vegetable gardens and herb gardens. And gardens, they had, you know, estates all over Somerset, uh, farms that had been given to them, um, which the, the monastery owned the properties and collected rents from the far, the tenant farmers and also had livestock that came that would be killed and would be slaughtered and 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 butchered in the um in the kitchens and and then cooked and fed to the monks so it sounds to me like they would have had quite a good life i mean there would have been a lot of food on the table but they led a life that was very strictly ordered by the rule of St Benedict as they were Benedictine monks so they got up early in the morning and they went into church to into the abbey church to pray and <clears throat> sang um, and they went through the 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 the, the day um, with a rhythm that was marked by the of uh, the offices the the services that they were required by taking their oaths to sing starting with um, matins and ending with with vespers 
and um, that punctuated their day. That was also uh, punctuated by other activities. So some of them would be eating and that communal dining took place in the refectory and there would be uh, reading solemn lections that took place during their meals where um, scriptures and, and the works of the church fathers would be read out to them. Uh, other monks had different tasks. So some of them were required, you know, looked after the monastic properties. Some of them had um, learning tasks. So there was a great library, which we'll come back to later, I'm sure, yeah, yeah. Um, in, the, in the monastery. And there were librarians there were monks whose tasks were to copy texts in the scriptorium um, there were um, uh, monks whose tasks were more focused to religious practice um, to you know maintaining the you know the the, the altars um, and singing mass for other people during the course of the day in the various chantry chapels and so on mm. so it was a huge busy institution do you think it merited, you know, I mean, part of the reason for the Reformation was this idea that uh, the, the monks had become extremely corrupt and monasteries were places where, you know, they all had girlfriends and, and even wives. And do you think in this, in the case of Glastonbury, that was a completely misplaced accusation? Do you think it was a well-run, genuinely devout? I think place? sort of. By and large, I think it probably was, um, you, know, uh, you know, the state of the Catholic religion by the eve of the Reformation has been much debated by, by scholars. Mm. I think there is a general sense that it was not as kind of decayed and corrupt as the, ref the reformers made it out to be. Certainly in 1538, there were you know, suggestions that there was um, a degree of perhaps not decadence, but, um, uh, you know, complacency in their, the, the, the standards of their religious life. Mm. Um, but the, the abbot himself was very highly regarded as an individual. So a kind of an elderly man by then, but he was, he was held in high regard. And it must have been difficult, mustn't it, as these monasteries got wealthier and wealthier. I mean, if you have got a huge amount of money, it's sort of difficult to resist the temptation to have something nice to eat for your dinner. It's 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 a sort of a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Um, I think let's go on to your second scene now, which is in the autumn. And it focuses very much on um, the abbot, Richard Whiting. So tell us what's what's happening. So what happens in the autumn of um, 1539 is that the Reformation really descends quite suddenly on Glastonbury. And its sudden descent um, to us with the benefit of hindsight seems kind of inevitable. And it seems an, a, a astonishing that anyone wouldn't realize what was happening. Um, so back in 1534, Abbot Whiting, along with all the other, you know, heads of the religious houses, was required to sign the Oath of Supremacy, which acknowledged Henry as head of the church. And he quite happily did that. So he knew, you know, that first kind of major step in the Reformation, he, he, he'd literally signed up to. And then um, in the course of the Reformation, from that point onwards, he must have seen other the other religious houses around the country the lesser houses be dissolved and become part of um 
you know, the, the royal estate, essentially. And so the fact that these grand, great, wealthy, powerful houses survived, it, to me, it seems like there was a, a complete inability to understand what was going on and a denial of the reality of um, what was a, a massive car crash about to happen. But I guess it was hard for them to... I mean, you know, how long had that monastery been there? Hundreds and hundreds of years. Uh, and I would imagine it would have been very difficult for anyone to, you know, a bit like with the pandemic, it was very difficult to imagine anything like that was possible, even though we have been through that kind of thing before. But I think in the Catholic world to then imagine there being this massive schism, I don't know. What, do, do you think, and perhaps people, you know, people who were in monasteries were quite separated from the literature that was coming out of Germany and the and the I, I don't know I think it's a really interesting I was trying to explain my one of my kids is doing the Tudor period and I was trying to explain to her or we were together we're trying to imagine what it would have been like living in England in the middle of the 16th century and you live in a village and you're Catholic and then suddenly you're Protestant and then you're Catholic again and how people would have navigated that in terms of their own beliefs and in terms of I think it's a fascinating um, topic. No, it, it, it is. And it must have been incredibly difficult for, a, a, you know, an elderly man mm. um, like Richard Whiting to come to terms with what had been his entire life. And as you say, the life of his institution for whatever it was, 600 years by then. So, uh, you know, and, and in a rhythm which is incredibly ordered, you know, yeah. Every minute of every day is kind of laid out in the rule of St. Benedict practically. Yes. And over time, it, it, it had become, you know, not only his, in his own DNA, in his own kind of mental world, completely bound up with it. But it must have been for the high, entire community, the, high, the entire region um, with a kind of such a powerful centre like the Abbey. Yeah. So, um Tell us what happens to Whiting. It's, it's... So in September, accusations start to appear that Whiting, um, uh, and, and these get kind of spread around, that um, he, he knew not God, neither his prince, nor any part of a Christian man, his religion. And um, so these uh, accusations, which are almost certainly, be, you know, circulated by Cromwell um, as part of his kind of engineering of the Reformation, which took place not just in this kind of very formal legal setting, but in a very kind of practical, hands-on, how do I, how does Mr. Fix It, which is what Tom Cromwell mm. is, how does he make it happen? So, you know, he's, he's circulating these accusations and the commissioners are sent um, um, and they visit um, one of the homes that the abbot has, um, um, in part of the monastic estates in the, just outside of Glastonbury, a place called Sharpen Park, on the 19th of September, where the commissioners visited, they raided his house, they rummaged around his, his um, property, and they found evidence of his cankered and traitorous heart. And that included um, what they claimed were um, jewels and silverware that he had stolen from the abbey 
and um, incriminating documents condemning the royal divorce. Yeah, yeah, sounds like it. They, these were plants. And so what then happened is that um, this gave the commissioners the trigger, the excuse to try him for treason. And that happened in November, on the 14th of November, um, in the town of Wells, just um, nearby Glastonbury. It's a short, you know, a few yeah. minutes in the car um, today. And um, the main charge levied against him on that day was that he robbed the church of Glastonbury. That must have just been heartbreaking for him, that that was what he was convicted of doing. Yeah, absolutely devastating. Brutal. So he's convicted and then it, it gets worse, this story. It gets very violent here. And I think that's one of the things that we forget about. You read the history books about mm. the Reformation, but you it's hard now to kind of really think about the violence that took place, you know, an absolutely brutal incident that then followed. So he's taken back to Glastonbury from Wells after he's convicted. Um, he's then put in um, uh, a, a hurdle. So... Uh, uh, a, a kind of uh, a wooden frame that he's fixed to and he's dragged through literally dragged through the streets behind a wagon of Glastonbury up to the tour where he asked God's mercy and the king for his great offenses so even though he's on trumped up charges and I don't know whether by this point he's so traumatized that yeah he actually believes it or whether he's just, you know, his his deep faith kind of radiates out that he says, you know, I, I must have done something wrong, so please forgive me, whatever it is. Yeah. And um, he's then hanged, and he's his body is then taken down from the gibbet, and his um, his body is butchered. It's quartered. His his body is cut into pieces, and. Um, a quarter of it is taken to the town of Wells. Uh, another quarter of his body is taken to Bath and the rest of it to Ilchester and Bridgewater. And his head, uh, and this is the most, I, and I'm glad that he's dead, <laughs> is all I can say, is that his head is placed on the gate of the abbey itself. But imagine what that must have been like for the people that lived in the town for whom the abbey was everything. It was, you know, the where they worshipped it's also probably the biggest bit as you said the biggest building in the entire country I mean it must have been such a source of pride and and you know they presumably they knew him and had you know had knew his face I mean it just yeah it's extraordinary and and it definitely puts um the reign of Mary Tudor in quite a lot of perspective doesn't it that yeah no absolutely uh, and from you know I I think it's almost, you know, the, 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 the time which I kind of, in my head, I think is most similar to this, must have been revolutionary Russia in 1917. Mm. So, you know, an old order that is based on partly on immense wealth and power, but partly on tyranny is, is upended almost overnight in a rapid, in a rapid period, which is underpinned by um ideology 
but it's also an, a, a moment of opportunism for mm. many people. So there are some who just find the whole idea of change abominable and terrible, and they they want the old world to come back, and they 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 they're traumatized by the change. And there are others who think who believe in the new ideology and think this is you know the righteous way uh, forward. And then there are a whole load of people in the middle who just see this as opportunity and, and, and opportunity for their own, their own wealth, their own livelihoods, their own gain, their own personal gain. Absolutely. Yeah. Hello, it's Artemis. At Travels Through Time, we're incredibly proud to be partnering with Jordan Lloyd and Colourgraph. Jordan is one of the world's leading visual historians. Through his excellent craftsmanship, he brings black and white photographs of the past to life in startling colour and clarity. Jordan's extraordinary work, as well as that of his contemporaries, can be found on the website colourgraph.co. At colourgraph.co, you'll be able to explore the process and history behind the colourisation work, but most excitingly of all, you can also buy some of these beautiful photographs as museum-grade fine art prints. They make an unusual and striking present for that friend or family member of yours who loves the past, and they're an excellent addition to any room. Whether it's a colourised photograph of the US Capitol building from 1846, or a candid shot of the Beatles from 1964, you're pretty sure to find something that enchants you. I know I certainly have many times. It's hard to explain really over audio just how cool these prints are, so I encourage you to have a look for yourself at colourgraph.co. What's more, Travels Through Time listeners get 10% off when they enter the code TTT at the checkout. So let's just take a breath. Uh, and now let's go to scene three, which of course is then, we've had the, the, the human um, suffering and now the cultural um, suffering begins for the Abbey. Part of the process of dissolution <clears throat> is the breaking up of the estates. And that means allocating out its wealth. And some of that is property. So, you know, the farms, the land that Glastonbury owned was then handed out in patronage. Some of it kept by the crown and some of it given to um, people who the king wanted to have wealth and power and by allocating that out he could gain political advantage because they would gain seats in the house of commons and would vote for him well the Berlin family were quite big benefactors weren't they from this hundreds of people who benefited like this who then became great you know wealthy powerful families for centuries afterwards mm. But there are also, you know, tangible assets like, you know, the the jewel, you know, the jeweled crucifix that would have sat on the high altar, or the the plate, the chalices, and um, the patterns that were beautiful and part of the, um, you know, the religious life of the the house, but were then melted down for their raw material wealth as part of this disbursement. But in fact, everything went and it was either sold or just stolen by um, the, the, the commissioners and their team who set about the dissolution. But also, one can imagine, by the people of Glastonbury who thought, right, everyone's helping themselves. I'm going to have a bit of this myself. And they <laughs> yeah. would have 
you know, they will have taken a few chickens or they, you know, they would have helped cut, climbed in at night and taken some of the, the woodwork, even the stones of the abbey. If you walk around Glastonbury today, you see 16th and 17th century buildings that were created from um, the, 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 the stonework of the abbey and, the, and its surrounding buildings, which became a quarry. Yeah. You didn't need to go to the actual quarry to dig the stone out of the ground. <laughs> you could just take the, you know, the dressed and prepared. Yeah, pre-weathered. <laughs> pre-weathered. Um, okay, but what I want to know about is the books, the library. Glastonbury had a fantastic library, a famous library. We don't know exactly its size, but it would almost certainly have been between 1,500 and 2,000 volumes. So a huge library by any by, by contemporary standards. And we know a little bit about it because of the activities of a man called John Leland, who was an antiquary employed by Henry VIII to find raw material for the intellectual case that Henry had to first of all divorce Catherine and marry Anne, and secondly, to separate the church in England from papal authority. And Leland visited loads of libraries around the country in a series of journeys that are known as his itineraries. And it's quite well documented, partly because John Leland's archive survives, guess where, in the Bodleian. <laughs> so you can see these extraordinary documents and it includes a list of the books in the library that Leland saw in 1533. But there's also in the archive an account of him visiting the library. And if you don't mind, I'll read it out. It's extraordinary. A few years ago, I was at Glastonbury in Somerset, where the most ancient and the, at the same time most famous abbey in our whole island is located. By the favour of Richard Whiting, abbot of that place, I had intended to refresh my spirits, wearied by the long effort of my studies, until a burning desire to read and learn would inflame me afresh. This desire, however, came upon me more quickly than I thought it would. So I immediately went to the library, which is not open to all, in order to examine most diligently all the relics of that most sacred antiquity, of which there is so great a number that it not only easily paralleled anywhere else in Britain. Scarcely had I crossed the threshold when the mere sight of the ancient books struck my mind with an awe or amazement of some kind. And for that reason, I stopped in my tracks for a while. So you can imagine him getting a, into the door of the library, seeing all these books on the shelves and swooning. You know, he, he literally is staggered by the sign. Oh, my God, this is so fabulous. I just can't wait to get the book. <laughs> And um, I, I know this because I felt that many times myself. And um, he says, then having saluted the genius Lockie, I spent some days searching all the bookcases with the greatest curiosity. And he then describes lots of the books that, which he read and some of which Whiting plucked from the shelves and said, come, come and have a look at this. And how many of those books that he specifically mentions survived the dissolution? So he mentions, I think he lists something like 17, particularly there are only about nine that survive. Okay. Uh, and of, of the kind of 1,500, 2,000 books that must have been in the Abbey, um, we have a catalogue of 1242, but nothing really from that point onwards, but it would have been somewhere in that order. We have about 60 that survive out of the 1,500 or 2,000. And so it was, it was a, just a huge, and this really comes across in your book, just 
the scale of cultural and, and especially book destruction that the Reformation. And I wanted to ask you, um, because a lot of uh, the, the, you know, the sort of intellectual impulse behind part of the Reformation was humanism, which was very focused on the rediscovery of ancient texts and the preservation of texts and the retranslation of them. And the text was at the heart of that. How on earth did those, I mean, how did Thomas Cromwell sleep at night? How did he, you know, I mean, I feel like having read the Hilary Mantel books, I feel like I know him really well. I feel like I would, you know, I don't, I, I can't work out how those two things go together. I mean, he must have been aware of the destruction. Was it just a case of they're Catholic books, books, it's scholasticism, it's just the church fathers, we don't care? Do you think that was their attitude? For some people, it's let's just wipe the slate clean. Let's start in year zero. It's like the Cultural Revolution in China. Let's just get rid of the past completely and start afresh. And all of that stuff no longer means anything. And so that's at one end, one extreme. Um, part I think Cromwell is a pragmatist and he just mm. wants to get the job done for his boss and make himself powerful in the process and so any of these kind of more overarching feelings that he might have had about you know the importance of knowledge and the kind of you know access to ancient texts and so on this was been a kind of a detail that he could have suppressed in his own mind I think that's how he dealt with it and that you know you can think about the psychology did that <clears throat> sort of then come out as violence um yeah but I, I, at the other extreme, there are some individuals, and that's what I try to focus on in my book, who we now call antiquaries, mm. who, even though they might have been Protestants uh, and part of that kind of movement that you know, was totally bought into the dissolution and the, the removal of Catholicism, actually regretted, bitterly regretted the destruction and sought to preserve the books, even... Um, to the point of rummaging around in the ruins to find whatever they could and they formed their own collections which in the process of the latter part of the 16th century some of those collections came to form the foundations of the new great libraries like the Bodleian mm. eventually the British Library's collection was formed by an antiquary called Tom, uh, Robert Cotton who had a kind of independent research library in the 17th century. And, th and there were others, you know, Lambeth Palace and, and others that were formed by this process of preservation. Well, John Dee, not least. John Dee, who you've written about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and, and others, Matthew Parker, the you know, yeah. Bishop of Canterbury for Elizabeth I, who was very anxious to preserve knowledge. And his great collection in Corpus Christi College, Cambridge, is, is one of the great examples of that, that urge, that impulse for preserving knowledge, even though it might be, you know, ideologically unsound. Uh, the, the the fact of its preservation is of overriding importance. Yeah, so that was the silver lining of of the destruction, I guess. Um, can you just tell us uh, quickly before we end about St Dunstan's class book because that was a one sort of we can then we can end on a kind of cheerful note. The the one that got away, um, <laughs> the one that that survived. Yeah. So one of the one of the books in the list that we have in 
John Leland's archive in the Bodleian of that he saw in the library of Glastonbury. And one of the reasons why he swooned um, as he crossed the threshold of the library in 1533 is a book we now call St. Dunstan's class book. And this is actually an accumulation of texts. It's not one book, but it's a compilation of, of four different texts, each from different periods, but three of them at least are associated with a famous 10th century religious figure in Britain called St. Dunstan. And St. Dunstan is uh, one of the most important religious figures in a kind of mini reformation itself in the 10th century, uh, a renewal of Christian ideas and of intellectual, intellectual understanding of those ideas, which um, St. Dunstan, who had been abbot of Glastonbury and then latterly Archbishop of Canterbury um, and had traveled to Northern Europe to pick up, um, you know, new religious ideas and brought them back to England uh, and had found these texts. Um, uh, some of them, like you say, um, you know, uh, the, actually the preservation of um, classical texts from the ancient world, in this case, Ovid, um, the, 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 the Roman writer. Um, and, and have pulled these together in a volume which um, has a picture on the front cover. And the picture is a drawing of Christ with a monk kneeling at Christ's foot. And that figure, the kneeling monk, is almost certainly St. Dunstan himself. And so it's almost certainly the earliest self-portrait in English art. Goodness me, that is amazing. And so this book, some of which dates back to the seventh century. Yeah. So it has seventh, ninth, tenth, and eleventh century parts to it. And there's not many books that survive from the seventh century. Many books that <laughs> are that old, and that some of them come from Wales, some of them from Brittany, some of them from England. So it's kind of European ideas all being brought together in this one volume that's associated with one of the greatest English saints of the early mid Middle Ages. And um, it actually survives through time. So it's in the Glastonbury catalogue in 1242. It's there in the list of books that Leland saw in 1533. And then the library is, is, is torn apart in 1539. And most of its contents are torn up and the pages ripped out and sold to soap makers to wrap soap in and butter makers to wrap butter in and pie makers to line pie dishes and book binders to strengthen book bindings. And a few of them survive and they're acquired by antiquaries, these collectors, these lovers of the past who are considered curious and weird uh, in, in their own time, but kept these collections together. This particular book, is acquired by a kind of um, uh, an antiquary called Thomas Allen, who lived in Oxford. Yeah. Thomas Allen had a great collection of books and he gifted them to the Bodleian as one of the founding collections in the early 17th century to start the new institution that Sir Thomas himself had founded as a, res as a response to the destruction of the Reformation in Oxford. And so this book then, having survived for all those centuries in Glastonbury, it, it survives through this tumultuous, violent period of the 
30s and, and, and subsequent decades, and then it's preserved in the Bodleian for another 400 years and counting. And, and now it's your responsibility at the moment. Um, is it, has it been digitised? Is it possible for listeners to, to go online and search it? Most um, certainly is digitised. You can go on digital, if you just Google digital Bodleian, and you then put in just into the search engine on di digital Bodleian, the term Dunstan, you can find uh, the digitized images of the class book of St. Dunstan. And, um, and I hope you do, and I hope you enjoy looking at it. Um, that's a good note to end on, but I do have one more question to ask you. Um, and that is, of course, if you could have picked something up from one of the scenes that we visited together today um, and brought it back to the present with you, what would it be? Oh, it'll have to be St. Dunstan's class book. I, it would have to be that. Um, I would love to have sort of rescued that from, um, you know, the, 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 the dispersal sales or, you know, to plucked it from the hands of some sort of greedy sort of local tradesman who wanted to kind of tear it up and use it for you know to line his shoes or whatever and uh and to have you know preserved that extraordinary volume wonderful thank you so much it's been a real joy to talk to you richard thank you for coming on thank you violet it's been absolute pleasure to 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 discuss these interesting things with you. That was me, Violet Moller, talking to Richard Ovenden the other day. His captivating book, Burning the Books, A History of Knowledge Under Attack, is out now and was recently nominated for the Wolfson History Prize. It is available in all good bookshops. And as he said during our interview, you can go online and see St Dunstan's class book and many other wonderful treasures for yourself by visiting the Digital Bodleian website. And if you find yourself in Oxford, I highly recommend a tour of the Bodleian Library. As always, you can find out more information and see some pictures illustrating this episode at our beautiful website, tttpodcast.com. If you enjoyed this, please subscribe and rate us wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, goodbye. <laughs>